as they say across the pond, Isaiah chapter 2, page 676, Isaiah chapter 2. As we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, the last two Sundays we had our missions conference, our annual missions conference, and we had special speakers in and we put Isaiah on hold a little bit, but here we're coming back to Isaiah and today we come to a great passage in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. Maybe before we jump into this passage, though, uh, maybe the way I'd like to start this out is just put your Bibles down for one second and take out your sermon notes, which is this insert in your bulletin, if you're new with us. And uh, look at the front. There's a quote on the front. What I'd like to do is read the quote, read this sentence, and have you react to it and in, in a sense, in, in sort of just within yourself, react to it, respond to it. Here's the, here's the sentence. The world mission of the church is the most incredible, exciting thing that God is doing in the world today. In other words, uh, the plan of God through His church to bring the good news of Jesus to the whole world, to every language, every tribe, every nation, that plan to preach Christ to the world is the most exciting thing that God is doing in the world today. Now, here's the question. Does that sentence connect with you somehow? I didn't say, do you agree with it? Because, I mean, we all have to agree with it. It's kind of like a Sunday school thing. You know, we're like, oh, yeah, I'm sure that's true. You know, it's in Jeremy's notes, so it has to be right. Um, you know, what, uh, so, so I'm not saying, do you agree with it mentally? I'm saying, like, when you read something like that, when I read something like that, does it, does there something in it that resonates with me like, yeah, yeah, right? Or, or is it kind of like, well, I, I know it's true in my head, but it doesn't, it doesn't do anything with, uh, with my life. Um, to, to what extent do you feel a connection to what God is doing around the world today? I guess that's what I'm asking. Uh, we just had this missions conference. For the, if you were here the last two Sundays, we had guest speakers. In Sunday school hour, we had missionaries. We had all different... Uh, trips into the city, missionaries in small groups and homes. And, and so we had this sort of missions thing. Let me, let me ask you, how does the missions conference connect with you? Uh, I, I mean, the, were you like, all right, missions conference? Or, or were you kind of like, oh, yeah, what is this, two weeks? And then we go back to regular schedule. You, you know, does it, do you understand why we're doing it? Or, or is it just something that kind of ch- church does and you go, oh, missions conference. Oh, now back to regular life. You know, and I'm not saying this like in a condemning way. I'm just asking honestly, like, to what extent does it connect with us? Does it connect with us? Maybe some of us came from church backgrounds where we didn't have uh, missions. Or if your church did do missions when you were growing up, it was more like some arm of your church way off in some department across the country did missions, but it never really came to the local church. It's not like your local church was excited. Maybe you didn't grow up in a church. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. I keep talking about missions, and you're just like... You know, what is this man talking? Yeah, you know, missions just kind of going like this. Again, missions is this idea of the church's job to go to the whole world, starting here with our own families and friends, and going outwards to the whole world to tell the world that Jesus is a great Savior, that Jesus is the Savior of humanity, that you need to put your faith in Jesus and find salvation in Him. That's the message we're taking to the whole world. And, and does that, that mission of the church connect with you? So what I want to do today is to look at the book of Isaiah chapter 2. Because Isaiah chapter 2 is, just happens to be, a missions text. Uh, Just sort of fell this way in in the schedule, which is pretty cool. 
I didn't really plan it like that. I wish I could say I was that uh, savvy, but I, I, I didn't plan it that way. It's a missions text. So what I want to do today is my goal is to kind of go back to the book of Isaiah and give you a theology of missions. I know that sounds so exciting, doesn't it? But I, I want to I lay out a, a sort of theological framework, a, uh, a reason why from the Old Testament that we do missions in the New Testament. And to give you sort of a deeper understanding, to go backwards to deepen our foundations of what the mission is all about. My goal is, is that from doing this, you'll come back to that same sentence and be like, yeah, I understand a little bit more. So today's message is going to be a little more theological. I mean, I try to make every message theological. I try to make every message have meat. But this one's going to be even a little bit more digging into things. So you're going to have to kind of bear with me a little bit here, put on your theology hat. I promise you that at the end, when we get all the theology in us, you're going to go, yeah! I, I mean, I hope you do. I do anyway. Uh, at least I will. So one of us will be excited at the end of this. Um, and, and, and see how all of this theology works out in like tomorrow at Monday when you go to work and it gets down to your regular life. I think this is really going to connect. So that's my mission this morning is to to lay out a theology of missions from Isaiah and to see why missions is the most exciting thing in the world today and to see how we're connected to that. So look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. Let me just read the text. It says, This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will say, come, many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is a pretty amazing passage. I mean, I don't know what your, your gut instinct is or gut reaction when you read this passage. I read this passage and I just think, whew, that sounds great. Yeah, I wish that's how it was. This sounds awesome. Wow, did you have the Lord's temple raised up and His word going out and people at peace with one another. It would have sounded awesome to the people of Israel too because if you've been with us the last, say, month, as we've been studying Isaiah, as we were looking at Isaiah chapter 1, things didn't look that bright. If you've studied the first couple of sections of Isaiah, it's pretty gloomy. Um, God's people are sinning against Him. They're breaking His law. God is threatening them with judgment and punishment. So you read through chapter 1, you're like, ooh, this is not good. And then you hit chapter 2, and it's this like whiplash. And there's this incredible vision of the future where we see just the opposite. It's glorious. It's great. God's temple is raised up. People are coming to the Lord. It's like things have totally changed. So this is an exciting prophecy. Let me just delve into this prophecy. Um, as I look in this prophecy in Isaiah, I see there's three parts to it. Let me just show you what I think the three parts are. The first part of the prophecy is that the mountain of the Lord's temple will be raised up. You see that in verse 2? It says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. In other words, what that means is the worship of the true God, the God of the Bible, will be exalted over the worship of false gods, the gods of the nations and false religions. 
That the, this is kind of a militaristic kind of thing. The God of the Bible will be exalted. That's what this verse means. Notice it says, The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. You know, what's all this mountain business? We're talking about mountains here. Is this, you know, sort of a geology class? You know, why is it the Lord's mountain over the other mountains? Remember, mountains in the Old Testament and in the cultures around them were places of worship. That in the ancient world, the, where, the place you went to worship the God, if you wanted to get really close to the God, was you went up on the mountain. You know, it's like, here's the mountain, right? At the top of the mountain is the highest point where the, the earth touches heaven. And so, in those cultures, that's where you went if you wanted to worship a god. Uh, you guys are familiar with this from Greek mythology. Where do the gods live? Mount Olympus. You went up on Mount Olympus, and that's where the gods, you know, they had this party, whatever thing they did up there, and they hung out in Zeus and all his weird friends. And then, uh, it, it, you look in the Bible, do you remember the battle in First Kings between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Where did it take place? On top of Mount Carmel. I mean, there were, there were altars up there. It was just where people went. They went up on top of the mountains to get in touch with the gods. Or maybe you've seen pictures in, um, from your World Civ class in high school. You've seen those little pictures of like uh, the ziggur- they're called ziggurats. They're in Mesopotamia. They're kind of built like this. They're pyramids. Seen those things? You know, they're not these kind of pyramids. They're like the pyramids and uh, not as good pixel quality, so it's kind of squarish like that. And, uh, and, and what they would do is they would build these structures. They were kind of like man-made mountains. And that way the priest of Marduk in Babylon, he would go on to up to the top of his ziggurat. It was a man-made mountain, and he would go up to the top of it to worship Marduk, the god of the Babylonians or whoever. Well, Israel's temple was on a mountain. It was the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So when it says here that the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains, it doesn't mean that literally the mountain is going to go and there's going to be this huge tectonic shift and suddenly the city of Jerusalem is going to be at 30,000 feet in the air higher than Mount Everest. The point is that the worship of the true God is going to be exalted over the worship of the false gods. That it's going to be clear to everyone that the God of Israel alone is God. And that the, the mountains of the nations, the false worship, will be uh, put in its place as, as not the true worship. Now this will have a consequence, which is the second part of the prophecy. Because this happens, the nations will start to come to the Lord. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So because God's worship is going to be exalted in the last days, then of course everyone in the nations is going to go, ooh, look at that. You know, this is the image. Let's go. Let's, come on, let's go to, the, to hear about what God has to say. And so the nations are going to come to God. But also the word is going to go out. So you have this idea of just God's word, God's ways, God's law being saturated around the world. It's not going to be just contained in Israel anymore, but it's going to go out to the nations and to the world. Which leads to the third part of the prophecy. So we have the exaltation of God's worship. We have the word going out to the nations. And we also have verse 4, peace between the nations. That's the third part. It says in verse 4, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Then it's this closer. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So because God is exalted, because His word is going out, people start living at peace with each other. 
Now, if you can imagine, this prophecy would have been very welcomed news for the people of Israel. Yet remember, this was spoken, first of all, to the people of Israel at that time. And, and they, they lived in a condition that was very much the opposite of this prophecy. Uh, God being exalted, they must have heard that and said, Oh, that sounds great, because right now the God of Israel is just kind of worshipped here in Israel. And we believe He's the true God. We don't believe the gods of the nations are real. And yet the gods of the nations, the nations ignore the true living God who created them. And you know, just ground at the faithful in Israel. Ah, oh, why won't the people of the world see the true Creator God? But then the prophecy comes, someday they will. Someday His name is going to be exalted above the nations. Or what about the second part of the prophecy, the word going out? I mean, at this time, the word was, again, confined to Israel. And even in Israel, the people didn't really follow it. That's the problem with Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, look, you have the word of God and you don't even obey it. But in the future... The Word of God will be honored and it will go out among the nations and the people will come in and the people will go out. You can see this kind of pattern. Or the third part of the prophecy, peace. Again, at this time in Israel, there was warfare. The Assyrians were, let's see, from your perspective, it would be this way, coming down into Israel. The Assyrians were threatening to come down into Israel. The Egyptians were pushing up from the southwest. Israel was at war with Judah. There was war everywhere. But in the future, there would be peace. Man, this prophecy would have sounded so exciting and hopeful to the people of Israel. Frankly, it sounds hopeful and exciting to me. I don't think it's just for Israel. I, mean, I read that and I say, wow, I would love to see this take place in the world. You know, this is what we're looking for. You know, world peace, all that stuff. I mean, it's right here. This is God's plan. God has a plan to bring that about. Which then leads me, anyway, to the next question, which is, okay, when's this going to happen? This sounds awesome. You know, when... Is there something we can do to make this happen? You know, when is this all going to take place? And we have the answer right here in this text. It's in verse 2. When will this take place? In the last days. That's when it's going to take place, in the last days. And you go, okay, <laughs> what does that mean? When is the last days? What are we talking about here? Maybe it would help to understand that, that in the Old Testament prophetic literature like Isaiah, they're sort of developed this conception of a future period called the last days. Sometimes called the end times. Sometimes it's called afterwards in that day. I know, you start talking about last days and you think of the guy who's got like the, the sandwich board sign. He's walking around and says, repent, the end is near. You know, you know that guy who walks around Boston, he's got this, the last days sign on. So, you know, you know we kind of hear this stuff and we kind of, you know, it's part of us that makes it a little bit like, huh, what is that all about? But, you know, what, is, what does the Bible understand as the last days? That's what we have to ask. And from the Old Testament perspective, there was this, this hope in the future period of blessing and prosperity and peace and God's grace on the world. If you look at your sermon notes on the front, there's a little diagram, a very simple diagram, that kind of describes this, this perspective. There's the present age in which the prophets were prophesying. And they prophesied about a future age called the age to come. Sometimes they called it the last days. Sometimes they called it afterwards. Sometimes they called it in that day, at that time. So you get this sense of like, yeah, right now things are bad, but in the future things are going to be good. In fact, you can divide all, pretty much all the prophecy of the Old Testament into two general t types. There's the bad news and the good news. The bad news usually applies to right now, and the good news is generally speaking for God's people in the future. So, in the present age, if you look at the lists there, you see those lists? In the present age, God's glory is rejected. 
But in the future age, God's glory is going to cover the earth. That's like in our prophecy here, that the Lord's temple is going to be exalted over the nations. Uh, in the present age, the leaders of Israel are unfaithful. But in the future age, there's a hope of a faithful Messiah who's going to come. In the present age, the Holy Spirit's gifting is sporadic. But there's prophecies that in the future period, the Holy Spirit's just going to get dumped out on God's people. He's going to be poured out all over the place. In the present age, there's national sin and idolatry. But in the future age, God's going to give His people hearts of flesh and take away their hearts of stone. It's going to forgive their sins. In the present age, the covenant that's given to Moses has been violated, broken. It's all over. In the future age... God's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant He made with their forefathers because they broke My covenant, God says, though I was a husband to them, is what it says in Jeremiah. Uh, now there's foreign oppression. In the future, God's enemies will be vanquished. Now the nations are in darkness. Then the nations will come to God. Again, that's like Isaiah 2, isn't it? The nations coming to God and drawing close to His Word. So you get the picture, right? That's, that's the old, generally speaking, it's kind of a summary of the Old Testament prophetic perspective. As the Old Testament prophets looked forward, they said, there's going to be this time coming. It's going to be great. It's the last days. Looking forward to it. So, again, let's ask the question, all right, so when are the last days? When is all this stuff going to take place? When we come to the New Testament, this is key, listen here, we find that the last days began with the first coming of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus came into this world, all of this stuff here on the right-hand column that's so great began to take place. It was set in motion. Every, you can go down this list, and if you want to, come up after service, we can talk about it. You can tick off every item on that list has begun to take place with the coming of Jesus Christ. Is it completed yet? No. Is there more to be fulfilled yet? Yes. But the last day's prophecies are, are all starting to, to, to be set in motion. They're all taking place. So they started with the first coming of Jesus. They're happening now. And they're going to be completed when Jesus comes again. And just so you know, I'm not pulling this out of the air. Look at page two of the sermon notes. This is, uh, here's a list of some scriptures in which the New Testament talks about the last days of the end times. And what I want you to notice, don't take my word for it. Take out your concordances. Look it up yourself. Look up end times, last days, final hour, last hour, consummation of the ages. Look up any of those phrases in the New Testament and you will find that they always speak of the present. The New Testament writers aren't talking about, yeah, way down in the future. They're like, in these last days, it was a present reality. That's the New Testament interpretation. So, for instance, let me just give you some for instances. <laughs> uh, look at the top there, Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. Do you remember this? Holy Spirit's given to the church in the day of Pentecost. And Peter is explaining to the crowds what's just happened. He says, no, this, this Pentecost event, is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel. In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Or 1 Corinthians 10.11. These things have happened to them, that is Israel in the context, as examples and were written down as warnings for us as Christians on whom the fulfillment of the ages will come someday in the future. No, sorry. Has come. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken by His Son. So Christ, the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament are coming to pass. Or look, just uh, one more, I don't want to read all these, but look at the second one from the bottom. 
It says, He, Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So this thing I'm talking about has a name in theological circles. And uh, I'll just give you the name so you can go home and wow your friends. But it's there at the bottom. It's called Inaugurated Eschatology. Doesn't that sound great? I shouldn't be doing this. I mean, I go to seminary to learn words that you don't know so I can sort of sound smart. So I shouldn't really be telling you what these words mean, but I'm going to do it this time. Uh, You know, this is so hard to understand, isn't it, right? It's so easy. Look, inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology just means the end. Inaugurated means, you know, it started, but it hasn't been completed yet. So this is inaugurated eschatology. It's the biblical view. It says the end times events have begun and are underway with the first coming of Jesus and will reach completion at the second coming of Jesus. Are they completed yet? No. Is there more to come? Yes. But it has started. Everything on the right side of the list is unfolding, even as we speak. It's already started in the coming of Christ. If you want to look at it pictorially, look at page 3. There's a, for those of you who are visual types, this is how the scheme looks. So the Old Testament perspective is kind of like, there's going to come this moment, boom, and we're going to switch from one age to the next. But what we find in the New Testament is there's this overlap of the ages. You see that? The present age is continuing, and then the age to come has begun, but this sort of overlap. It's not like one ended and one began. That's why Jesus told all these weird parables about the kingdom that were freaking out the Jews. Jesus would tell these weird parables. He would say things like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's very small. It starts small seed, and it starts out slowly growing, but eventually, over time, becomes the largest tree in the garden. And the Jews are like, what? That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God falls out of heaven like a meteorite. And there it is. A slow... What? Jesus? No, 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 no. That's not how the kingdom of God is. It's not like a little mustard seed. You you know, the end time things don't don't start out small and grow slowly. They just come, right? It's like, no, no, no. Or, or, you know, uh, in in Acts chapter 1, the the disciples are like, now are you going to give us the kingdom? And Jesus is like, no, first the gospel has to be preached to all the nations. In other words, the Old Testament hopes have begun, but they began in a way that was surprising to the Jewish people. That's the important thing. Sometimes there'll be a prophecy in the Old Testament, but how it's fulfilled, you have to kind of wait and see until the New Testament. And sometimes it surprises you, which is why you have to be careful with prophecy. It's almost like you try to grab it and you say, now I got it, and it squirts out of your hand, and it does something different. And and that's what happened. The Jews said, "Ah, we we know how this stuff in the Old Testament is going to be worked out, and they grabbed it and it squirted out. And Jesus said, no, 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 it's a little bit different now. It's being fulfilled in a surprising way that you wouldn't have expected. And so there's this overlap between the ages. Maybe what I should do is, um, this is what I'm going to do. Let's go back to Isaiah 2. All right? And ask the question, are you still with me here or am I just off in my theological just nirvana? All right? Are you guys with me? Um, all right, I hope so. So, so let's go back to Isaiah chapter 2, which is about the last days. And uh, let's, let's take this prophecy, there's three parts of it, and ask the question, how has this prophecy already begun to be put in motion. If the last days really are the coming of Christ, as the New Testament consistently and repeatedly teaches, and these things are set in motion, are they completed yet? No. Are there going to be more? Yes. But it's set in motion. And so, let's see how it's being fulfilled in the New Testament. First of all, the exaltation of the Lord's temple and His mountain. It says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. 
How in the first coming of Jesus was the Lord's mountain and the Lord's temple established and exalted? I would answer the question because Jesus was exalted. In the exaltation of Jesus Christ, God's temple promises find fulfillment and and are beginning to be put in place. You know, Jesus is the one. It says in, uh, you, you know, we know he was crucified, he was buried, he was raised. And then he was exalted to the Father's right hand. It says in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or it says in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, um, he, appointed, he appointed him to be head over everything for the church. He placed all things under Christ's feet. So Jesus Christ has been exalted over the nations. That, that exaltation is, is happening right now. The worship of the true God, He's being lifted up. And you say, now wait a minute, Pastor, wait a minute. It says in verse 2, the temple will be established. Not Jesus. The temple will be established. And I would just throw it back to you and say, well, in the New Testament... What's the temple? Open your New Testaments. What is the temple in the New Testament? I mean, yeah, there's a physical structure, but, but that's never the focus. Jesus is the temple in the New Testament. What is a temple, people? A temple is a physical structure where the presence of God dwells. Jesus Christ is the true temple. The temple in the Old Testament, in fact, everything in the Old Testament, was just pointing to Christ. They're all pictures of Jesus. You know, the priesthood in the Old Testament? It's a picture of Jesus. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, it's a picture of Jesus. You know, the exodus from Egypt is a picture of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. And the temple was a picture of what God was going to do in Jesus. It was God among us. It says in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, in Greek, the Word is tabernacled among us. Oh, that's so cool. Or in John chapter 2, check this out. Look at your sermon notes, John chapter 2, halfway down. Remember this quote from John chapter 2? It says, Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Where was Jesus standing when he said this? In the temple. He said, Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And the Jews were like, What? It took 40 years to build this temple. You're going to knock this temple down and you think you can rebuild this temple in in, three days? I mean, I know you're a carpenter and all, but I mean, this is a big job, Jesus. How do you think you're going to rebuild this temple in three days? He's like, knock it down. I'll rebuild it in three days. What was he talking about? Himself. He was saying, when you crucify me, after three days I'm going to rise. And John tells us that was the fulfillment of that prophecy. So it's like, what are you talking about the temple for, Jesus? It's like, he's the temple. He's standing in the temple basically saying, I'm here to collect. This temple was pointing forward to me. Now I'm here. The temple's here. I'm here. This is it. This is God among us in in physical form. And that prophecy is still being fulfilled because as you look at the New Testament, what is the temple in the New Testament? The church. It says in 1 Corinthians two times that, that, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says in the book of Ephesians, that uh, consequently you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, right? 
built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Or in 1 Peter, it tells us that we're living stones in this temple. And we could go on and on. But the point is that it's surprising. It's not what we expected. But the fulfillment of this temple thing is happening in Christ. And wherever Christ is being exalted, this prophecy is it's starting to happen. And wherever the church is being birthed, this prophecy is, is happening. It's just so incredible. Well, let's look at the next part of the prophecy, which is that the, the Word of God would go out to the nations. The nations would come to Him. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Verse 3 of Isaiah 2. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion and the Word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the great, the great surprise, again, this is sort of a surprise twist. Paul talks about this, but that the gospel is going out to the nations. That God's plan was that Gentiles would hear about Jesus. I, mean, there's, I don't know if there's any of you here are Jewish. Maybe not. I think most of us here are Gentiles. You know, the surprise is that my barbarian ancestors in Germany, and I have some few my Viking ancestors in Norway that some of them would actually get included in the people of God, that the Word of God would go out to them, that some of you uh, heathen Irish people would actually get the Gospel taken to you, that, that some of you who uh, are from Africa in your roots, or some of you who are from uh, Latin America in your roots, that the Gospel would actually come to you too, that it was going to go out to the nations. And so we see this, this sea of faces here this morning, drawing close to God, coming to worship Him. And I don't see very many here who are ethnically Jews. Most of us here are Gentiles in all of our various flavors. And we're here. like We're here worshiping the true God. We just stop and think about how amazing that is. The Gospel is going out among the nations and, and they're coming to Jerusalem. And well, This is interesting too. Remember we asked, what is the temple in the New Testament? Well, you look in the New Testament, what is Jerusalem and Zion in the New Testament? What is it? Is it the literal, physical place in Palestine? Or is it something else? Look at uh, your sermon notes again. Look at the bottom of page 3. This is from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has just finished talking about the story of Hagar and Sarah. Maybe you're familiar with that from the, the Old Testament. If not, it, it's okay. Just follow along here. It says, These things may be taken figuratively, for the women... Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. There was the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant under Christ. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. That's the Old Testament covenant. And bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for what? Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. So that, place, that physical place in the Middle East, he's like, that, that's the slave place. That's, that's the old covenant. He says, because she is in slavery with her children. But here we go. The Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. We, the, Jerusalem is not some place in planet Earth anymore. I mean, it is, but it's not. The hope is, is God's people in heaven. That's where it's shifted to. Or look at the, the next quote down, Hebrews chapter 12, from a different author in the Bible. Jesus says, but you, or Jesus, uh, the, the author of Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion. And you go, wait a minute, I've never traveled to the Middle East. I've never been to Mount Zion. No, no, you've come to Mount Zion. To the heavenly Jerusalem. The city of the living God. 
You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And so as Young uh, says in his commentary, Zion is the center of truth. If a man wishes to hear the truth, he must go to the place where the truth is found, namely the church of the living God, where the truth of the gospel is taught. And so whenever I stand up here and preach about Jesus, Isaiah chapter 2 is happening. Whenever we send a missionary out around the world and we raise up money and support them with a missions budget, Isaiah 2 is taking place. Isn't that cool? All right, just one more then. What about the, what about the peace? Remember in Isaiah 2 it talks about world peace? That's already begun too. It's begun in the church. Because people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation are being joined together in the church to live at peace with each other. Um, that's what God was doing. He's bringing us together to create a new humanity. The church is not just an institution. It's a new humanity that God is creating, made up of, of, of all the peoples of the earth, centered around Jesus Christ, who's the new Adam. You see all that? It's, it's the new humanity that God is making, and we're a part of it. Do you remember last year at the missions conference, we had a really cool speaker. His name was uh, uh, Slave Vilashanov. I think I pronounced it right. Slave was, he's a 27-year-old church planter in Croatia. And this dude is just on fire. Do you remember him? He's so amazing. And uh, he's talking about all, these, all this stuff going on in Croatia, that, the, the powder keg of the Balkans, that totally unstable, crazy place in the world. There's all kinds of ethnic fighting that's been going on for centuries. And he told how in the churches there, you'll find worshiping together Serbs, Bosnians, Croats, all these different groups who are at each other's throats are in the churches worshiping. You won't hear about that on CNN, nor will you hear about it on Fox News, as fair and balanced as it is. You're not going to hear about these things in the news networks. You're not going to read about it in the papers. What you're going to, the only place you're going to hear about it is through these little stories. Because what God is doing is a secret thing that's kind of going under the world's radar. He's knitting the peoples together. Or it's not even just over in Bosnia, it's here in Boston. Uh, last week uh, for the missions conference, I went in uh, to a trip in Boston where we visited different churches that are church plants. There's a church in Boston called the International Community Church. It's a building that houses seven different congregations. It's so cool. There's an international congregation that has like, you know, something like 20 different nationalities in it. There's a deaf congregation. Everything is totally... Sound, you know, there's, there's no sound in, in the whole thing. It's all you know, signed and everything. In fact, they say that they turn on the music really, 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 really loud. Not so that people will hear it, but so that they'll feel it. And they can feel the beat of the music. It's like, wow, there's a deaf congregation. There's a deaf church. There's, um, uh, I think there's two Brazilian churches, a Slavic church, a Vietnamese church, I think. And I think she said a, a Burmese church. You know, they're all there in, in Boston. And, you know, it's like... Man, this is it. All these people getting along. The, the, the nations are coming together. Now, are the nations of the world still at odds with each other? Yes. Is there still war in the world? Yes. Are, is the church a perfect place of love and harmony? No. But the point is, it's begun to be fulfilled. Is there a greater fulfillment yet to come? I sure hope so. And I think there is. But it's already started in the church. These things have been inaugurated and they're taking place. So let me just wrap this up by going... Go back to your opening quotation, that thing I had you read in the beginning. The world mission of the church is the most incredible, exciting thing God is doing in the world today. 
I hope you can feel that a little bit more. I hope, I mean, studying this helped me to see it a little bit more. The world gives us the impression that our faith in Jesus is a peripheral, random, private thing. It's like, yeah, you have your faith in Jesus, and that's okay. You can have your private little weird thing, and, and you can, that's your little self help mechanism. That's how you get yourself through the day. You have your private little faith in Jesus. That's all right. You know, just as long as you understand the real world is over here. And this is politics, and this is governments, and this is economics and jobs. And, you know, this is the real world that's going on. And, and if your private little faith helps you be a better person in the real world, that's okay. But you just remember, it's your private little faith. That's what the world tells us. And Isaiah chapter 2 is like, wrong. It's just the opposite. The, the real thing that is happening in the world today is God's call to the nations to come to Christ. And our little petty lives of, of things that we do and things that we think are important, things that we think are so great, and that's the little sideshow. The center ring is the gospel lived out through you and through the church around the world. The sideshow circus act is the stuff you hear on CNN and Fox and all the newspapers. This is what God is doing in the world today. So every time that you stand up and talk to the guy in the cubicle next to you and tell them about your faith, Isaiah 2 is happening. And every time you stand up in front of a bunch of little, you know, pesky, wild kids in a Sunday school class or some children's program, and you try to keep their attention and tell them about Jesus, and they're, you know, all over the place, and you're just trying to have them listen to something, Isaiah 2 is happening. And every time you lead your Bible study, Isaiah 2 is happening. And every time you say to your friend, hey, you know, come to church this Sunday or come to my Bible study, and they go, okay, I'll come and they start hearing about Jesus, Isaiah 2 is happening. And, and, and whenever we just live out our faith before our neighbors and they see there's something different about us, Isaiah 2 is happening. And whenever we raise up missions money to support missionaries overseas, it's all happening around us. But it's secret, it's invisible, and you won't see it unless you look for it. That's why Jesus had to say to his disciples, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for the harvest. Because it's so easy for me just to get caught in my own little backwater world of bills and, and appointments and schedules and doctor's appointments and my sickness and my finances. And, and I, I get lost in this little world and it's like, lift up my eyes and see this great thing that God is doing right under your nose, right in your own families. It's happening all around us. So lift up your eyes. Be a part of what God's doing. Let us commit ourselves to the world mission of the church and help us to see that it's not just something out there that some missionary is doing in Timbuktu, but man, it's like all of us, all the time, it's happening through God's church. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you because you are exalted, that your name is exalted, and we worship you because you alone are God. We thank you that someday, Jesus, you're going to return, and on that day, every knee, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you that even now, one by one, knees around the world are bowing in faith. That all around this world, Lord, there are people here in Hingham, there are people over in Indonesia, there are people in, in Tibet, there are people in um, Argentina, one by one, who are bowing the knee to the name of Jesus Christ and are coming to see him, Lord, that the word is going out to the nations. Lord, I pray, help us to see our part in that. Help us to see our lives uh, as about that task in whatever way we're participating, whether it's just one-on-one -on -one with friends or whether it's a missions conference. Lord, help us to see how you're using us as part of Isaiah chapter 2 to bring your kingdom and your glory to the world. 
Lord, give us a greater vision. Lift our eyes up, Lord. Lift my eyes up. My eyes are so... My eyes are like heavy. They can't keep from looking at the mundane things of the earth. Lord, lift them up so that I can see Christ and what He's doing. Lord, help me to look at my neighbors differently. Help me to look at the people at the gym differently. Help me to look at the work of the church differently and to see it as your great work that's going on in the world, as the central thing you're doing. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, After the service, uh, we have um, downstairs for you some coffee. And as Seth mentioned, there's uh, uh, some new Sunday school classes coming about discipleship. You ought to come down and be a part of those. There's two tracks downstairs. And after the service, if we can pray for you, our prayer teams here, Vera and Pat and Tom are over there, and they would love to pray for you. Just coming up after, after the service and say, hey, you don't know me, but could you pray for X? And they'll pray for it in confidence and just pray for you. They'd love to pray with you after the service. There's something we can pray about. And if you want to know more about what it means to know Christ, man, come on up after the service and talk about that. This sermon was kind of geared for Christians, but you know, if you still want to know what it means to be a Christian, to have Jesus in your life, come on up after the service. We'd love to explain that to you as well. Would you stand and let me just close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning on Mount Zion, gathered with the church of the firstborn, here in Jerusalem, Lord, with your people. But you told us that we had to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so, God, I pray, send us out now. May the word go out to the nations. Even as we walk out of these doors and go out and do our thing, we just pray, help us to see Isaiah 2 just happening before our eyes. And Lord, help it to change the way we look at people. Lord, this week, give us new eyes. Help us to see that that guy behind the counter at McDonald's differently. Help us to see our annoying co-worker differently. Help us to see our neighbors differently and to see our families differently. And Lord, help us to really pray for the, the gospel to go to the nations. And Lord, help us to see foreign missions differently and to be excited. Lord, do something new in us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.